The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Pew Bibles, it should be on page 998. Please stand when you're ready. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves are once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for being here with us. As you can see, we are continuing our journey this morning in Paul's letter to Titus. Titus was a young co-worker, a, a pastor friend of his that Paul called to go to the island nation of Crete back in first century A.D., and Titus needed some help on knowing how to pastor this church, and so that's what this little letter um, is all about. And we've been working our way through it section by section, and this morning we find ourselves uh, rounding the corner, rounding third, heading for home as we um, turn in our attention to Titus chapter 3. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to see Paul again making the connection between what we believe and how we behave Um, specifically in regard to this idea of the truth of how God's grace fuels our submission, Um, how we seek to give ourselves to others who are placed in authority over us, specifically rulers and authorities. That's what we see here in verse 1. But then also how Paul is going to call us to even live with an attitude and live with actions of submission to others around us in our public relationships and how we relate to believers or how we relate to unbelievers in the world as believers who have been born again by God. And so what we're going to do before we continue on, we're going to hit pause, we're going to pray, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to move in power, and then we'll turn our attention to these these first three verses of Titus chapter 3. So why don't we join, join me in prayer. Holy Spirit, we believe in your complete ability to demonstrate the power of God this morning, to take spiritual truths and apply them to our hearts. God, where our hearts are hard and where we bristle against this idea of just authority in our lives, God, I pray that you would soften us making the connection for us that there is a right way of behavior that lines up with the good news of God's grace. And God, I pray that where we are prone to make excuses and exceptions to to these things that we're going to study and read, trying to justify ourselves and why we should not have to obey in any given particular situation, that you, God, would not let us to walk in hardness of heart, but that you, God, would delight to soften us 
in obedience to your word, not so that way we can earn something from you, but simply because we have earned, simply because you have given us everything in Christ. And out of that reality, we delight to walk forward in obedience, simple, godly living. God, come and help us today. Please, Lord Jesus, for your name's sake, for your power, for the commendation of the gospel, and for the witness of your name among your people here at Delta Church, would you see fit and power to move in our midst. It's in Christ's name that I pray these things. Amen. When we think of Paul's letter to Titus, we can really describe it as a bit of an exploration, an exploration of how God's grace is meant to bear an effect in the lives of God's people. According to God's design, belief in the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners, this belief is meant to produce behavior that lines up with our belief. In general, as you sort of just scan back and maybe look at the book of Titus, like this sort of 40,000-foot view, when you look at Titus chapter 1 and Titus chapter 2, what we have seen is that Paul has dealt with the effects of God's grace in the church, and he's dealt with the effects of God's grace in the home. He's talked about how God's grace is meant to work itself out among leadership, pastors, teachers, these sorts of things, and then he shifted to the realm of the home, how men and women are to relate to one another, husbands, wives, these sorts of things. But as, Titus, as Paul's been talking to Titus about how God's grace is to work itself out in church and in the home, it's not as though God's grace is good news only inside the four walls of the home, or it's only good news within the four walls of the church. Paul wants us to see that God's grace has something to say for how we live outside of these four walls in our public relationships, in the public arena, the public spheres of our lives. Paul is about to round the corner and tell us God's grace absolutely has a way of affecting us and transforming us as we relate to those who are sort of vertically in authority over us, like rulers and authorities, things of that nature, but then it also has a way that affects us more on that horizontal level, just to those people that are in our lives that may or may not know Jesus Christ. In first century A.D., the Cretans, where Titus is pastoring, they were under the rule of Rome, and you can go and look at secular historians, and what they lay out is this, is that the Cretans absolutely hated the fact that they were subjugated under the rule and the authority of Rome. You can read many secular historians who say that the Cretans were well known for attitudes of insurrection, insubordination, rebellion towards those who were in authority over them. And the last thing they would have been known for was an attitude of joy-filled submission. But it was into this culture that the gospel appeared, and it was as this gospel was preached, men and women were forever changed. And it was up to Titus to go into Crete and to continue the work of connecting how God's grace affects our behavior in the world, especially our submission to authority 
and our submission to others. So starting in verse 1, Paul begins by focusing our attention on grace-fueled submission to rulers. That's what we see here in in verse 1. How does God's grace affect the way we relate to those who are in authority over us? In this instance, rulers and authorities. And Paul says one effect of God's grace is the way we relate to those who are in authority over us. So Paul writes in verse 1, Titus, when you go into church, you need to remind them, remind the Cretan believers to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. The good work of submission to authority, this isn't something new, Paul says. He says you need to go in and remind them. This shouldn't be some grand new revelation that's first hitting their ears. This is something that has been taught before as people talk about how the gospel affects our everyday livings. Paul just says, listen, they just need to be reminded of this reality of how grace affects the way we relate to those in authority over us. So you can go into other places in the New Testament. First letter that Peter ever wrote. You come to chapter 2. Peter says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. You go into Romans chapter 13. Paul adds This truth, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So Paul is teaching us, the New Testament is sort of coming together, coalescing, giving this idea that government exists as an institution created by God. And as citizens who have been born again, who have been redeemed and purified by Christ... We are to live within this God-ordained institution, and as we do so, we're to proactively look for opportunities to do whatever is good. And it's when we obey and submit to this God-ordained authority that we actively begin to portray the goodness of God's design to those in the world around us. You go into 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is talking to another pastor, similar to Titus, a man named Timothy. Titus was a young pastor sent to the island of Crete. Timothy was a young pastor that Paul was training up that he sent to a city called Ephesus. And in a similar way, Paul writes to Timothy in the two letters that we have, describing to him how he is to go and to pastor people who need to know about how God's gospel connects to everyday living. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says this, listen, Timothy, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, he says, that we may lead a peaceful life, a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So Paul is sitting here laying out to him like, listen, and when you take Titus and you take these two things together, listen, it is good and right for us to bend our hearts in prayer for those who are in authority over us. It's right for us to seek kings and to seek 
high people in high positions, to seek mayors and the governors and presidents and senators and congressmen or whoever it might be, men and women, it doesn't matter. It is good and right for us to pray for them, to bend our hearts, lifting them up before God. It's good and right, Titus and Timothy, to pray in such a way that God's people, as a result of the gospel in their lives, lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way, being submissive to rulers and authorities, being obedient to them, being ready for every good work, Paul says this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. But when you continue on in 1 Timothy 2, he gives this result, so that God, who finds these things good and pleasing, who desires all people to be saved, that these people will come to a knowledge of truth. So it's really interesting. The implication here is that as gospel People, as grace-transformed men and women, walk in a manner of submission to those in authority over them, this becomes one of the things that sort of becomes like a bugle blast showing the good news of God's grace to people around us and people in authority over us. Right? Typically speaking, insubordinate attitudes do not result in someone crying out, what must I do to be saved? If anything, insubordinate attitudes push people away. But what we do see is that God delights to save men and women in the world around us through the obedient, grace-fueled submission of His people. So God's grace not only affects our behavior towards rulers and authorities, but Paul takes it down to the horizontal level of our relationships. He says it also affects the ways that we relate to others, the way we submit our lives to others. And that's what we see in verse 2. Verse 1 is grace-fueled submission to those who are in authority, to rulers. Verse 2 just turns the corner and says, listen, there's a way that grace-fueled submission works itself out towards others in the public spheres and the public arenas of our lives. Paul says, listen, remind them, verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. So we're to speak evil of no one. We're to avoid quarreling. We don't malign or curse others with our words. We don't roam around looking for ways to start arguments, Paul says. To use an old word, we aren't pugnacious. Great old word. Pugnacious is this idea of being quick to argue. You're eager like if the fight isn't coming to you, you go and create the fight. You want to stir up anger. You want to cause conflict. You're pugnacious. You're looking for it. You're not avoiding quarreling. You are the one who starts quarreling. And the idea is that God's grace, Paul says, has so gripped our hearts and minds that it actually controls the words coming out of our mouth and it actually controls the actions of our body. Since we have been redeemed from sin and purified by Christ, the idea, again, is that we refuse to cultivate in our hearts and we refuse to exercise verbal or physical abuse to others. Why? Because we've been transformed. The gospel, Paul is saying, is just has simple, everyday implications about how it practically works itself out. We're not to be the kind of people that go around picking fights and using our words to speak evil against others. Why? Because we have been transformed. 
You go to Romans chapter 12, Paul says, We, us grace transformed people, we repay no one evil for evil. Instead, we give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, and as far as it depends on us, we live at peace with everyone. Because of God's grace, we decidedly delight to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. In other words, we are to be marked by gentleness, Paul says to Titus. We are to be marked as those people who show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, this is admittedly hard. When we step back and just look at verses 1 through 2, be submissive to rulers and authorities, be obedient to them, be ready for every good work, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling with others, be gentle to others, show perfect courtesy toward all people. You read that and you're like, okay, that's, that's very hard to do. Very hard to do. When evil is spoken against us, everything within us says you have the right to speak evil back to this person. When we are sinned against, everything within us says disobey, argue to prove your innocence, do whatever it takes in word or deed to vindicate just how right you really are in this situation. Or we hear truths like these in verse 1 and 2, and we try to produce a string of exceptions in order to justify why we should not have to obey these commands. Our hearts, I mean, this was my heart this week. You read stuff like this, like speak evil to no one, avoid quarreling. My heart immediately goes to that place like, but but, but what about this situation? What about this situation? Like you don't know the conversation I'm having with this person. You don't know how my boss speaks to me at work. I know this person is perfectly disrespectful to me. There is no way I'm going to show perfect courtesy to them. And our hearts are so quick to come and latch on to the exceptions so that we can somehow justify having to not obey the rule. But notice that Paul doesn't even go there. Instead, he simply calls us in attitude and action to count others more significant than ourselves. In essence, he's calling us to adopt the mind of Christ. For when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. So again, this is admittedly easy to speak and yet very hard to do. So when you're working through verses 1 through 2, the question I hope is lingering in your mind and sitting on your heart is, how on earth is this even possible? Like, how is this even possible? Like, how is it possible to walk out of here these doors, go and enjoy the rest of what's looking to be a beautiful day, knowing I've got to go into work on Monday, knowing that I'm stepping into a situation where cruelty is going to come to me, someone's going to sin against me, someone's going to speak evil against me, my boss is going to belittle me, someone's going to show disrespect or whatever it might be. How is it possible for me to go out and live out the rule, the command, the right teaching of God in verses 1 and 2 of Titus chapter 3? Where will I get the power to live like this? Where will my motivation come from? And in verse 3, Paul says it comes from remembering who we once were 
before Christ. See, this is what we see in verse 3. We see that the motivation, the empowerment to actually live like Jesus, which is what we see in verses 1 and 2, comes from remembering what Jesus has done to us by His grace. Verse 3, Paul says, For we ourselves were once a certain way. So he is linking himself with Titus, linking himself with the Cretan believers, saying, listen, before God's grace saved you and before God's grace transformed you, there were certain ways that we once lived that identified us apart from Jesus Christ. Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So the motivation for grace-fueled submission to others in the world around us, Paul says, actually comes by remembering who we were apart from Jesus compared to who we are now as a result of Jesus redeeming us from sin. Simply put, Paul is calling us to remember the power of God's grace in our life. The only reason why we are no longer foolish and disobedient, deceived, enslaved, marked by malice, envy, and hate is because our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us. In our darkest moment of need, God gave us what we did not earn and what we did not deserve. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. And Paul is saying that this unmerited favor, this grace that was shown to us, this acceptance on God's behalf when we did not earn it, when we did not deserve it, this scandalous good news of God loving us even while we're still sinners, this is the motivation for how we go out in the world tomorrow and act toward others who are caught in the bondage of their sin fueled by God's grace, remembering that the people I'm going to go and interact with, they are living like I used to live. And the only reason why I'm no longer here and why I'm now actually over here in God's grace is because God has done everything for me in Christ Jesus. And because Christ has done everything for me, I now have the freedom to go and interact with those who are living in verse 3 and not try to somehow take God's authority and take God's role in the world who is going to judge justly and say, it's my job to now act this way towards you. Paul says, listen, Titus, you need to help the Cretan believers in first century A.D. John, you need to help the Springfield believers in 21st century to come to this understanding that when we go out and we just walk in the normal rhythms and the ebbs and flows of everyday living, we are called to simply walk like Jesus, remembering His grace, how he saved us, looking at people, having compassion for them, seeing that they are helpless and harassed, sheep without a shepherd, and understanding that I will model the grace shown to me, not when I speak evil against them, not when I pick fights and quarrel with them, but when I actually show them gentleness and perfect courtesy. See, Paul is saying again that this unmerited favor toward us is the motivation for how we are to live toward those in our relationships 
in the public sphere. Verse 3. When you read verse 3, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty nasty laundry list there. But verse 3 is as much a description of our world today as it was a description of Crete in Paul's day. We live in a world of people who are foolish because of sin, disobedient because of sin, deceived, enslaved because of sin, living in malice, envy, and hate because of sin. And so instead of a superior, justifying attitude and justifying actions that speaks evil of others, quarrels, and avoids perfect courtesy towards all people, Paul says, listen, as you go out on Monday morning, you go to work, remember who you once were. Now, in my experience, Christians, when it comes to just these three verses and how they connect together, connecting how God's grace in our life is meant to lead to behavior that reflects God's grace in our life, in our words, and in our actions. In my experience, Christians tend to really stink at exhibiting this in the world. When it comes to exhibiting God's grace to others in the world around them, we don't often do a good job at exhibiting the grace in words and exhibiting the grace we received in actions. And this point is proven nearly every day on any given topic that shows up online. You read comments and blog posts, you go to Twitter, you go to Facebook, and it's just a cesspool of argumenting, quarreling, speaking evil, bucking against authority. From Starbucks red cups to government policies and everything in between, we tend to do the exact opposite in the public spheres and the public realm of our relationships the exact opposite of what we see Paul commending before us in verses 1 and 2. And the thing is, when we act this way towards others, we seem to forget that before God saved us, what's true in verse 3 was once true of us. Paul says, for this reason, we need to be reminded that if someone acted toward us back then, when we were living in the realm of verse 3, like we tend to now act toward others, we would not have been changed by these actions. See, like my fear is that many believers have lost credibility in their witness because their behavior exists disconnected from their genuine experience of God's grace. So they go online, they go into work, and they go at home, and they're saying things with their mouths like, yes, I believe in Jesus, and I've been redeemed, I've been purified, I've been saved by grace, I go to church, I strum the guitar, I lead, I do, I do all these things. But then here we are over here speaking evil, we're quarreling, we're picking fights, we're that guy in the office. When something doesn't go our way, we're trying to push and we're trying to shove, we're calling people out in the streets, we're sort of bowing up and getting in people's faces, and there's a disconnect there between what we're saying and our actual, how we're living. And when that disconnect exists in the eyes of the world, they see that disconnect. And my fear, again, is that many believers have lost credibility in their witness because their behavior exists disconnected from their experience of God's grace. And Paul's point is that our public relationships are to be steered by the transforming power of God's grace. 
Again, the second letter to Timothy, Paul drives home this point when he says, Timothy, the, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, patiently enduring evil. Paul's no fool. He knows evil's going to land in your lap. He knows people are going to misspeak against you. They're going to sin against you. They're going to cut you down. They're going to say something wrong. They're going to sin against you. But he says we are to be those who patiently endure evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Paul's not avoiding the possibility that we will speak and correct, but we're not to do it with red face, veins blowing out our neck, screaming and yelling. Someone posts something on Facebook, we're over here like, da, 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 da. just slapping out a response immediately, like within a nanosecond. I didn't like that. I'm like, like you just blow up the internet because you're just that guy, you're that girl. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. And listen to what he says here. So that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Do you see how he connects the two there? Again, when we are not quarrelsome, when we are patiently enduring evil, when we are correcting our opponents with gentleness, this is the behavior that God delights to use to bring a knowledge of truth to those around us so that there is a chance for them to see their sin and repent. So Paul says, like, listen, don't be fooled into thinking that you're going to lead others to a knowledge of the truth with insubordinate behavior and quarrelsome words. God's design is actually the opposite. It's when we are marked by grace-fueled behavior in the public sphere, this is how God delights to grant repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth. Now again, this doesn't mean that we call evil good. This doesn't mean we avoid confrontation at all costs. This doesn't mean that we never correct others. But the general rule of us as believers, for those of us here who have been transformed by God's grace, is that we are to lay all of our words and actions onto a scale. Unfortunately right now, I think what is this? There's more times that we are arguing, more times that we're quarreling, more times that we're speaking evil of others, and there's less times that look like Titus 3, 1 and 2, and we're over here justifying like, well, you don't know my situation, you don't know this person, you don't know this girl, and you don't know this family member, and you don't know this boss, you don't know this coworker. I have the exception to the rule. Paul is simply saying this, listen, the normal, average, everyday ebb and flow of your life should look more like this, where we are walking by this rule. People are saying something against us, and we go, listen, I'm just, gonna, I'm just going to show perfect courtesy in this situation. I'm going to bite my tongue. I'm going to choose to believe that the world will go on if I don't tap out my opinion on Facebook on somebody's post. I'm not going to pick the fight. I'm not going to quarrel. I'm not going to speak evil of my coworker or my boss around the water water cooler. I'm not going to do these sorts of things. The general ebb and flow of my life is going to be this. I'm going to live like this, choosing to believe that as I do so, God is going to take, because this is countercultural, God is going to take this mind-blowing countercultural behavior, this willingness to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to show perfect courtesy, and I'm going to trust that he's going to use that as a tool and an instrument in the lives of others. So that when that situation comes down the road and everybody's over here doing 
the opposite of Titus 3, 1 and 2. And you're standing over here going, man, I'm just like so much a fish out of water right now. Because I'm genuinely desiring to walk in a way where God's grace is fueling my behavior in this moment. I'm telling you, you're going to stand out. And Paul says, in those moments when you stand out, that becomes an open door opportunity for you to be able to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul is just simply driving at a way of grace-fueled living that actually proclaims the gospel of God's grace. In the end, because Paul's going to go here, he's going to ground this reality super deep in the gospel. Next week, we're going to look at verses 4 through 7, and it's just, it's just a glorious explanation of the gospel that grounds this behavior. But in the end here, as we just sort of zoom in on verses 1 through 3, Paul is just simply calling us to imagine a community of believers within the broader culture that we live in. To imagine a community within this culture that is subject to authority, obedient and ready to do whatever, whatever is good. A community that genuinely speaks evil of no one, which is peace-loving and gentle, showing courtesy to all people. This, he says, is the community that will adorn the beauty of God's grace, displaying its beauty for all to see. This is the good news of how God's grace fuels our behavior in such a way to when we walk out these doors, God's grace will be on display as he moves you through various spheres and avenues of life, making you to stand out and be different so that you can be salt and light in the given situations, those doors of opportunity that God opens before you so that in those moments you can seize that moment and then declare a good news word for Jesus Christ to people who are broken by sin and need to know about the grace of God. Let's pray. God, I've said it at least twice, and I'll say it a third time now. The words we've just heard are easy to speak. but they are hard to do. From where does this power come for us to live this way? God, if anything, these verses, Titus 3, 1 through 3, they show us we need you. We need you. We are desperate for you. We cannot walk out of this room in self-reliance and go forward saying, I'm going to grin and bear it, I'm going to buckle down and I'm going to do this. If we go out with that kind of sort of white knuckle, grin and bear it attitude, we're going to fail nearly immediately. So God, I pray that you would shatter in our hearts this self-reliant attitude and you would birth within us and fan into flame a Christ-reliant attitude. So that as we roll into Monday morning, what we could say is, Jesus, I know what you have called me to do, and I cannot do it on my own. Will you please help me? I need you this hour. I need you during lunch hour. I need you in the afternoon hours. And then Tuesday morning, we get up, we rinse, and we repeat. Lord, I need you. I'm desperate for you. Help me to be more reliant upon Christ this morning. God, give me opportunities to live in a godly way, not because I'm trying to earn anything from you, but because I've gotten everything from you in Christ Jesus, and now I just want to go and live in a manner that shows 
Jesus Christ in my life. God, would you please see fit to do this for your people so that your name would be made famous here in Springfield, Illinois. It's in Christ's name and in Christ's power that I pray these things. Amen.